Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Exhaling Words, the language podcast where I just ramble for an indefinite period of time, and I hope you all keep up. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, my name is Aaron, and I am your host, and we are about to start a series about something that I really love. I can't even tell you that it's a three-part series or a four-part series or what, but I I can say that it's definitely not going to be one or two episodes. So for those of you who don't know, I generally describe myself and my profession as a Western and Central Asian linguist. Now that's relatively broad, you know, we're looking at anywhere given on what period of history we're talking about from, you know, 30 to 50 to 100 languages spoken in Western Central Asia, Western and Central Asia. And so that's very detailed, especially for somebody like me who works on historical linguistics. However, most of my background is actually in Arabic. And though I eventually did graduate work and research in um, language contact and in the development of Persian and in Iranian historical linguistics, my first original love that got me into the region was the Arabic language. And to this day, like, I always tell people it's 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 quite easily my favorite language, um, which I think is saying something because I tend to be a little bit scatterbrained about languages. I'll I'll be really into a language for a couple months and then go work on something else. And Arabic has very consistently been in my life for almost twelve years now. It'll be twelve years later this year. And and though for a few years during graduate school was not at the forefront, I still used Arabic almost every day. I love the Arabic language. Even just yesterday, I was talking to a friend on Zoom, and I got into sort of a like twenty minute rant about the value of understanding patterns and how this all goes back to the underlying concept of like what is the sort of neurolinguistic value of patterns within a non concatenative morphological system. And if you don't know what any of those words mean, stick around, not for this episode, but in a few episodes, we're going to get into it. So my real love about Arabic is two things. One, dialects and dialectology and diglossia, which we're going to talk about today. And two, the Arabic root and pattern system, or on a linguistic level, what we refer to as non-concatenative morphology. I'm going to get into that in a later few episodes. I want to start with the dialects because I think they're a little bit more approachable and a lot of people are more interested in those as opposed to people who want to talk about, you know, the value of a vowel and where it is placed and what syllable and larger syllabic structure and moraic weight of a, of a, of a word. So I want to start a, a series today on Arabic dialects, on Arabic dialectology, on sort of the struggle of Arabic diglossia and what that means. I'm going to try to break it down today and talk about different sort of registers of speech in Arabic. And then in the coming episodes, I want to do a survey of how do we approach what is a dialect and sort of what dialect do we learn or which dialects are related. And then I think the final episode will be sort of that advice, which I have given on my Instagram page in a morning rant one day of how do you approach studying Arabic then as a student, as a self-learner, how do we pick a dialect, how do we balance dialect with standard, and so on and so forth. So let's begin. So I think the first question to start with is diglossia. What is diglossia as a concept? 
Where is it found? How does this term apply to Arabic? So diglossia, if you can hear the parts of the word, are di and glossia. So it's two languages. So theoretically, like the actual definition of diglossia is a situation in which two dialects or languages are used by a single language community. Now, there are a lot of examples of this, actually, especially in places where you have like multilingual communities. So, for example, if you do some research, things like Jamaican English versus like as in like Patois and then English as a sort of standardized taught language exists in this sort of dichotomy within Jamaica. In other situations, we're really looking at dialects of the same language. The three most prominent examples that I'm aware of for diglossia in the modern world is Arabic, of course, which is why we're discussing this, Greek, and Tamil. Now, in Arabic, we're going to get into this in a second. For those of you who know Greek, this is when we think about things like the difference between what is like katharevosa and vimotiki. Now, granted, these aren't two fully separate dialects that people speak separately, but especially during the early stages of the standardization of modern Greek, this was important about, you know, how do we maintain sort of the classical ancient language, which is the katharevosa, and also be, you know, the modern language that's representative of the language of the people, which is, you know, vimotiki, that's where that word comes from, is that it's, you know, the language of the people. Similarly, Tamil has two to three varieties that people will cite. There's there's what's like old Tamil, which I don't know if I would call it the same thing, but uh, if I'm reading this correctly, this is Senke Tamil, which is, you know, old Tamil as a written language. And then in the modern form, there is Sen Tamil, which is like a formal modern Tamil. And then there's Kotuna Tamil or Kotun Tamil, which is like colloquial Tamil. And from what I've heard from friends who have learned Tamil and are Tamil speakers, these are very different. Almost, you know, pretty much along the lines of the way we think of Arabic, standard Arabic and its dialects. So what this usually means is that there is a written language and a formal spoken language, and then there is a colloquial language. Now, I know people immediately go, well, English does that, French does that, Spanish does that, you know, we have nice language, and then we have the colloquial speech. But we're talking that the differences between these registers are so vast that they could theoretically qualify being called separate languages, that it's not word choice or using fewer contractions and, you know, informal speech. We're talking like grammatical forms change and entire meanings of words change. So it's not just word choice, but it's the fact that what this word means in standard Arabic does not mean the same thing in spoken colloquial Arabic. Or in the case of Arabic, where on the spoken colloquial level, we also have a wide variety of dialects, that meaning of that word that exists in standard might have a different meaning in one dialect and another meaning in another, and in a third dialect, it means the same thing as standard. This is, this is the struggle. And this is part of why Arabic is considered very difficult for people to learn, because to really sort of get a grasp on this language, you have to see all of this. You have to understand, you know, standard Arabic and read it and write it and speak it to a certain extent and understand it when it's spoken. And you have to also be conversationally proficient 
in a colloquial and you usually need to understand at least another colloquial. And this is something we're going to get into in later episodes when I talk about how do we approach learning Arabic and considering all of these things when we're trying to sort of take this on as a long-term serious goal of language study. So in the Arabic speaking world and in the Arabic teaching world, we usually just talk about two varieties. There's standard and there's colloquial. And for standard in Arabic, we often call this fusha. And the colloquial, we refer to as amiyah. Now, these are somewhat misnomers. I would say amiyah is is probably actually accurate, but fusha is actually kind of a misnomer for a couple reasons. The literal meaning of fusha is the purest. It comes from a word meaning fasih, which means pure. And then it's the feminine superlative form. So afsah is the masculine superlative, fusha is the feminine superlative. So it's the most pure Arabic language, the nicest form of it. In the English-speaking world, when we're teaching Arabic, we often just use the word fusha with students. And we say, you know, like, well, so this is what it is in fusha, and this is what it is in dialect, or in amiya. But when we say fusha, we actually mean modern standard Arabic. And that's usually not what Arabs think of as fusha. So if I use the word fusha in front of an Arab, they're going to go to a much more classical language, something that sounds closer to literature, to older literature, to the Qur'an, and that sort of level of writing, both in terms of word choice and grammatical forms, etc. Whereas when I use the word fusha with my students often, I mean modern standard, like what you might hear on the news, which is not quite that same level. And, and, and I'm going to get into that. So I think actually the word fusha is a misnomer and we shouldn't be using it in that sense. We should be talking about a modern standard Arabic, which is this sort of lingua franca that has been devised over the years, particularly during the Nahda period, with the rise of you know publishing and more widespread literacy around the Arab world. This led to the standardization of the language and sort of the creation of this lingua franca sort of standardized form. Then, in addition to this concept of standard Arabic, we might also have what we would call a classical literary, sort of older literary, more classical form. And that's really more reflective of what the word fusha means in Arabic when we're talking, you know, to native speakers. I think the term amiya, to mean colloquial form, is actually very accurate. It's not the word dialect. The word dialect in Arabic is lahja. Amiya comes from the word am meaning the public or the people. And so saying amiya is, it is the language of the people, it is the public language. And so to me, that's actually quite accurate in describing what we're talking about when we say these sort of spoken varieties. However, that sort of idea of there being two forms doesn't feel accurate. Even just there when I'm explaining the inaccuracies or the the faults in using the word fusha, you can see that there are nuances within this, that there is, you know, very nice fusha, which is closer to classical language, which is closer to, you know, Quranic Arabic. And then there's sort of standard fusha, which is what we teach in the classroom, which is what you might hear on the news or in very formal spoken settings. And similarly, Amiya has varying forms. And so... I feel like the best way to consider this is to look at it more as a spectrum. That on one end, you have Amiya, but you have Amiya that's very, very colloquial. It's filled with slang, idiomatic expressions that are unique 
to a country or to a region or even down to a village. While at the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, what is functionally seen as the pinnacle of Arabic language writing, which is the, you know, which is the Quran itself, which even, you know, non-Muslims often regard the Quran as beautiful Arabic. And it is, it's, it's very nicely written Arabic. It's gorgeous. And so when we look at that as a spectrum, there is obviously a a wide variety of, of forms of Arabic that can exist between this. And there was an Egyptian linguist who tries to divide these up. Saeed Muhammad Bedawi was an Egyptian scholar and uh, linguist, and he talks about what he calls five sort of registers of the Arabic language. Two of them belong to a larger category called Fosha, and the other three belong to a larger category called Amiya. But within these larger categories, he breaks them down into subcategories, which I think are relatively accurate, more or less. I, I don't agree with the wording sometimes. I understand where it came from. I mean, the man was born in the early 20th century, and so obviously there's going to be some bias here in, in how he chooses to describe them. But I do think that the using these as sort of benchmarks along this spectrum of registers of Arabic is actually quite accurate and I'm and I'm okay with that. I just think maybe we should come with better terms. So let's let's break these down here. Since I already started kind of talking about the questions around the word fusha, let's start at the top. Bedawi divides the category of fusha into two forms. The first one, the higher one that's going to be at the top of the spectrum or this register column here, is called what he refers to as Fusha et Turoth, which translates to heritage classical Arabic. To him, this is really, you know, this is the language of the Quran. This is um, the language of very high level classical Arabic literature. I wouldn't even say maybe even modern literature. I would say older literature. I think modern literature actually does not match up to the same level of formality or of poetic beauty as sort of what is understood to be at this register. That's something that's debatable. Because again, if we're looking at this as a spectrum, there are even probably subcategories within this. But the general idea is that the very end of the spectrum is Quranic Arabic. And then classical literature, like very old classical literature, is going to be closer to that. And then as we get into modern literature, it's going to sort of move away from that. And that's not just in terms of Fosha. I mean, there's modern literature where people use Amiya for the, for, the, for the dialogues and for the conversations. There are people now who write entire pieces of literature in their local dialects, their local sort of Amiya forms. And so that's not unusual either. But generally, this is sort of this is the language of classical Arabic literature and of high writing. The second level, which comes just underneath of that, and is the other form of fusha, he refers to as fusha al-asr, which is contemporary classical Arabic. This is more or less what people would call modern standard Arabic. This is, you know, it's classical Arabic. It's a little bit updated in some of its grammatical forms, you know. There's a couple spelling changes and things that I can think of. It has more loan words that um, has, you know, adopted or coined new words that are cows off of English or French. 
I would I would lean more towards calcs here as opposed to loan words. Um, there are definitely loan words, but this is where you'll also see forms that are calcs of English and French words. And for those of you who don't know, a calc is more like a translation. So, for example, a skyscraper, actually calling it like a skyscraper, something that scrapes at the sky. This this would be a calc. So, this is the kind of Arabic that you're going to hear in news broadcasts. This is the kind of Arabic that you're going to see people write official documents in. Reading books like uh, like primers for elementary school children are going to be written in this. Newspapers, you know, any sort of modern literature that is not trying to mimic that sort of old classical style is probably going to be written in Fosha al-Asr. So these are, these are the top two levels. The next level is where we get into the question of Amiya. And so his highest level of, of Amiya, he refers to as Amiyat al-Muthaqafin, which is the language, or sorry, the, the colloquial of the cultured. Um, this is where I don't I don't like his terminology here. He's going to use culture. He's going to talk about basic education and illiteracy. And I don't like some of these terms. But I understand where he's coming from. This is this is a spoken form of Arabic, which is going to take a lot of loans from standard Arabic, from MSA. And it's going to also be using loan words from maybe French and English, uh, maybe from other foreign languages, depending on which dialect. This is a, a colloquial form, nonetheless, but it is a little bit higher. And this is where I want to problematize sort of even the terminology MSA. I think MSA is very much, by its definition, MSA is Fusha al-Asr. But I don't think that that's what a lot of us teach in, in Western Arabic language classrooms, particularly in American, in, in, in U.S., Arabic language classrooms, I think a lot of us are teaching, I don't even want to say that we're teaching Amit and Muthaqafin, although that is sort of where we're going when we're doing more what we call integrated approach now, where we teach dialect and standard side by side. But in particular, during the first year of Arabic, maybe the first two years, the the Fusha that we're teaching is not full Fusha. We're not adding full vowel endings. We're not adding all the Arab. We're not you know, for elementary students, for sure. I'm not caring if, for the present tense, if this is marfua or mansub or majzum. You know, these are these are sort of grammatical forms that we get into later when we're teaching. And so I don't really think that we even teach full MSA, as in, you know, fusha al-asr, until maybe late second into third and fourth year Arabic. I think what we're teaching at first is amit muthaqafin, but a little bit higher. I think, honestly, what we teach in a lot of U.S. Arabic classrooms is sort of a dialect that exists in between MSA, in between Fusha al-Asr, and Amiyat al-Muthaqafin. And then when we teach Amiya, we really are also teaching Amiyat al-Muthaqafin because we're not giving the students a full immersive experience into all of the colloquialisms of a dialect. We're really, we're really sort of letting them dip their toes into it. And so what they end up speaking is is Amiya in some forms, but then they might be using a word choice that isn't really a word that we would use in that dialect and is more a Fusha word because they don't know the dialect word. And so as they're learning, they're really sort of teetering between Fusha al-Asr and Amiyat al-Muthaqafin. So I think I think these sort of two levels are the levels that most of us that are non-native speakers and 
and students of Arabic in language classrooms are really sort of existing in, especially for the first couple years. Below Amiyat al-Muthaqafin, we get Amiyat al-Mutanawwadin, which is the colloquial of the basically educated. Again, I don't like the term, but the idea behind this is that this is colloquial sort of almost in its purest form. It's the colloquial that people use. It doesn't really have a lot of loan words from MSA. It might have more loan words from foreign languages because because those are just common because of, you know, global media uh, media and that's what people are using. It's it's an informal form of amiya. And it's used, for example, some people describe it as like, this is the amiya that you use when you're not discussing intellectual topics. And this is what I try to explain to people sometimes is that when you live in a world where you're just speaking amiya, so as a speaker of Arabic now, after, you know, 12 years of Arabic, and when I lived in Jordan, when I when I work around Arabs, we all sort of exist in this realm of amiya tamutanawadin, because that's sort of natural amiya. And then as we start discussing more formal topics like economics, like politics, like, you know, what we see in the news, the language itself, because of the word choice around it, is going to increase in register. And we're going to approach more this realm of and that's really what it is, is that an, an, an educated speaker, again, this probably isn't fair to use this terminology, but this is how it's presented is that an educated speaker of Arabic is going to sort of switch regularly between Amiyat al-Mutanawwadin and Amiyat al-Muthaqafin. And then in very formal settings when they're writing or in very formal settings when they're speaking, especially these are usually skilled speakers who have learned to do this, then they might start speaking Fusha al-Asr because they have to, like news broadcasters, people who are sort of more in that realm of speaking more formally on a regular basis. Now, at the very bottom of this sort of spectrum or column, or I've seen some people, you know, draw it as a pyramid, is the final level of, of, of Amiya, which is Amiyat al-Ummiyin, which is the colloquial of the illiterates. Again, I don't really like all the sort of classist and sort of educationally biased terminology around this. This is Amiya in actually I should probably say this is the Amiya in its purest form. I often think of 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 Amit Mutanawadin as Amiya in its pure form because as a non-native speaker, that's the sort of most natural one. But Amit and Ummiyin, this is what native speakers speak. Before they are taught MSA, before they are exposed to other dialects, before they are educated in any way, this is their native dialect. These are varieties that naturally evolved that are sort of this. This is the form when we talk about it's a separate language from MSA. Whereas Amit Mutanawadin has some influence from MSA, has some influence from other dialects. These sorts of higher levels of Amiya are not, quote, pure because they have influence from either other languages, other dialects of Arabic, or other forms of fusha because of education, because of literacy, because of globalization and mass media. So you could say that Amit al-Ummiyin is one's native dialect. It's one's most natural form of speaking. And then as you are either exposed to other dialects, as you are you know, slowly educated, as you learn to read and write and become open to influence from outside sources, you start to live more in the world of 
Amit Mutanawarin. And then eventually with more education and more reading and more foreign influence, more outside influence, I shouldn't say foreign here, you move towards Amit Mutakafin. And if you're paying attention there, you've noticed I've said exposure to other dialects. The question of dialects is, is one that people struggle with when discussing Arabic because they always want to ask about mutual intelligibility. And this is a place where... I mean, this is no offense to anybody, but native speakers are often not aware or not self-aware in this question. Native speakers of Arabic, because they are often raised in the Arab world... They are exposed to media from a young age that is produced in other dialects. And then they go to school and they're taught standard Arabic. And they travel and they meet people from other countries or they have friends in other countries or they listen to music that is produced in another country or by a speaker of another dialect. And so often what happens when you ask native speakers like, are different dialects mutually intelligible? They'll often tell you yes. We all understand each other. It's all the same language. And to be honest, I've, I've come to understand this mindset as a speaker of Arabic, even though it's not my native language, over the past 12 years. Because as I have progressed in my knowledge of Arabic, and as I have been exposed to other dialects, as I have formally studied other dialects or traveled or met people who speak other dialects, you learn to make sense of everything. You start to see patterns, and this is something I want to get into in the next couple weeks. You start to see patterns across dialects that often in certain regions, this sound becomes this. Or often in certain regions, you know, these words that are different between standard and the dialect that I speak also exist in Moroccan dialect, for example, but they have a different connotation. But I'm still going to understand the Moroccan speaker to a certain extent when they use that word because it is a word that I know. I have to adapt to their nuance behind it and and sort of the nuance behind what they're saying, but the words are still there. Now, you do end up getting outlier dialects like a lot of the Western North African dialects that are because of less exposure they are far less understood but for example you know we we joke about how everybody understands egyptian everybody understands lebanese and that's really because of exposure it's really because you know moroccans grow up watching egyptian film and so do you know people from the gulf and so do people from the levant and because of the exposure to egyptian dialect people understand that dialect not because egyptian dialect is somehow naturally more mutually intelligible to other dialects And this also gets reflected in our speech, that as speakers of Arabic, both native and non-native, and as speakers of different dialects, when we come together and speak, we don't usually speak in fosha. You know, that's what everybody says is learn fosha because that's what everybody speaks when they don't understand each other. We usually end up speaking more in that sort of amit and muthaqafin. That, for example, if I'm in a conversation as a Jordanian sort of Palestinian or Southern Levantine speaker with an Iraqi and with somebody from Morocco, there are features of Iraqi dialect that I understand and a Moroccan understand. And there are some features of Moroccan that I understand and the Iraqi will understand. And those sorts of features are not features that the Moroccan or the Iraqi speaker will change. But at the same time, the Iraqi speaker might realize that if they use a specific construction 
I'm not going to understand it as somebody who doesn't speak Iraqi or the Moroccan might not understand it as somebody who doesn't speak Iraqi. And so they sort of raise their dialect to something that is closer to Fosha. We don't sit around and speak beautiful, nice, proper MSA Fosha, but we sit around and speak a more cleaned up variety. Some people often refer to this as Lahja Baida. I actually heard this phrase from a Moroccan colleague that I used to teach with, that she said that that's what she feels like she speaks. It's sort of an Egyptianized kind of neutral dialect. Lahja Baida, by the way, for those of you who don't speak Arabic, means like white dialect. It means like a neutral plain dialect. And she feels like that's what she speaks when she's in a group of diverse Arabs and, and non-native speakers, because it's more understandable rather than her own local Moroccan dialect. And so this is why I bring up the question of exposure as well as the spectrum, because when we talk about using standard Arabic and Fosha as a means of mutual intelligibility of international sort of communication among Arabs and among non-native speakers of Arabic, sometimes that's not always true. A lot of times people don't sit in a room and all speak Fosha, they sit in a room and all speak sort of a cleaned up variety of their own dialect that others will understand. And obviously the context will dictate that, you know, for example, if it's a much more formal situation, people might speak more of a fosha, but if it's more informal, people will just sort of speak their own dialect, but a little bit more accessible to others. So it really just depends. Now at this point, I've already been talking 30 minutes, and I don't want to go much further, but I just want to leave it at that, that understanding Arabic as a diglossic language is really more than just, oh, there's two forms. It's really more of a spectrum, I find. And what I'm hoping to get into over the next few weeks is questions around what are dialect groups and sort of how they have their own subspectrums, as well as shared features across the Arabic-speaking world, depending on things like education, things like urban dialects versus rural dialects, and so on and so forth. So again, this is a topic that I really love. If you have any questions about it, comments, if you want to, you know, give me your thoughts on it as a speaker of Arabic, by all means, please message me. My name is Polyglot Aaron. That's P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T-E-R-I-N on all major social media and at gmail.com. I love interacting with you guys and I love the Arabic language and this topic. And so I would, of course, enjoy speaking with whoever wants to share with me their thoughts on this and any questions you might have that you'd like me to address in the coming week. Please, by all means, send them to me. And until next week...